The Warrior Path is a premium remote fitness and nutrition coaching service devoted to training first responders and military servicemen for the harsh realities of their careers. Treating clients like the elite athletes they are so they can get home to their families safely. Each program is individually designed around the unique needs of the client. So whether you are an aspiring police recruit trying to maximize his hiring potential or training for special forces selection, the Warrior Path can tailor a program to your individual needs. With a monthly savings of up to 16 times that of a traditional personal trainer, the choice is obvious. But spots are limited, so hurry now. The first 15 clients will receive an additional 25% discount. The Warrior Path, serving those who serve. Head to www.thewarriorpathpro.com today. Thanks for listening to the Mentors for Military podcast. Our goal each week is to bring you amazing content and guests. Support our podcast by visiting our Patreon site at www.patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L, to pick a tier that is right for you, or donate any amount you like. It's that easy. You may even pick up some cool swag or have an opportunity to help us co-host an episode. Help us bring you an awesome episode each week by visiting patreon.com slash mentors mil today. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to our two biggest patrons, and that's Jonathan Lambert and Stephanie Lincoln of Fireteam Whiskey. In this episode, Paul and Scott join me in welcoming Andrew Bluebaugh to the show. Andrew has over 15 years of military, private security, and law enforcement experience. He's a full-time police officer, member of a county-wide SWAT team, and the primary firearm tactics and use of force trainer for his agency. Additionally, Andrew spent four years as an adjunct instructor for the Ohio Attorney General's office and continues to instruct with Chris Serino Training Group and Rifles Only. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. Maybe it'll be helpful for you, Andrew, to just maybe at this point dive into a little bit of your background. Sure. Uh, so I was born and raised in northeastern Ohio and uh, always wanted to join the military, you know, at an early age, like like most guys. And uh, my dad got really sick, ended up uh, passing away when I was 18 years old. And uh, I promised my parents, my dad was uh, drafted during Vietnam. So he was like, I want you to go to college first. And, uh, after he passed, I just, I knew this was something I needed to do. So I, I dropped out of college and, uh, joined the Marine Corps and, uh, and I had went back and forth on every service at one point and, uh, settled in with the Marine Corps, got in the Marine Corps and absolutely loved it. Uh, got into a unit called fast company, uh, fleet anti-terrorism security team, uh, went in infantry and then it's a security force, uh, contract, uh, went in through that route. And uh, had a lot of fun, ended up getting a uh, medical issue and uh, got out. This is all pre-9-11, so uh, I didn't do, uh, do anything too crazy or cool. But uh, it was uh, primarily a, a security-minded uh, uh, enlistment is what I was doing. So I ended up getting out, and because of the medical issues... I wanted to get back in. So I figured the best way I could get back in is if I proved to the military that, uh, that I could come back in. 
So I figured the best way to do that was to hike across the country a couple times. So I went out, hiked the Appalachian Trail uh, the year I got out, fell in love with long distance hiking. So then I hiked a couple more trails, ended up logging in about 10,000 miles and uh, figured out everybody was graduating college and I was still living in my mom's basement kind of going out of there. I was doing some security work on the side, some uh, private security stuff for Lockheed Martin at the time and uh, figured uh, I better open up the next chapter of my life and get a, a, a more full-time career. And that's when I got into law enforcement. So really wanted to cut you off back then because I was just kind of yeah. blown away and fascinated by what you were talking about in the long distance stuff. So, you know, I was a recruiter at one point within the military and listening to that, I don't remember anywhere on the application where we said, okay, you got to give us a bio of how you've overcome the, the disabilities that you had. So, so that was really fascinating that you decided to do it in that way. Why? So that when you went to the MEPS that you could have a conversation and say, Hey, listen, this is what I was able to do. And here's kind of the proof that I actually did it. Is that what you were looking at or? So what happened was, uh, the unit I was in, we were doing a lot of, uh, uh, security around naval nuclear weapons and, uh, fuel rods and stuff. I ended up soaking up some radiation, uh, shortly after I started breaking out in hives, had anaphylactic shock a couple of times and had to, uh, that that's what got me out. Yeah. Um, and I knew there was no problem. And the doctor said, look, you got some sort of food allergy. And they tested me for the common foods in the chow hall. Um, and I was like off the charts. And uh, they said, hey, this was existing prior to entry. You got to get out. So I ended up getting out. And uh, I figured that what the doctor said was, look, if you can show uh, proof after X number of months that you're okay, well, then you can come back in. Oh, that, that's okay. what they, that's how my exit was. Yeah. And, uh, I was pretty pissed off, you know, because I was, I was on a good path. I had had meritorious promotions all the way up to, to E4 and I was loving it. I was on track to probably make it a career. I mean, that's, that's my thought process at the time. Oh, sure. I bet it was. Uh, so I was curious about that because I could tell you a lot of times the MEPS doctors seem to be contracted physicians that have nothing to do with the military physicians as you're exiting the service and, Having ran into those situations, they don't seem to communicate well or read the same regulations. So that's why I was curious about that. Yeah. Anyway, so after service, then you end up transitioning as an LEO then. Yeah, I, I spent uh, I spent a good well, several years uh, bouncing around, traveling, hiking, climbing, and then doing uh, private security stuff in between just to make money to do trips. And did you ever go into anything within the LEO as, uh, as far as like SWAT or anything like that, or was it just all? Yeah. So once I got into uh, law enforcement, uh, I started out uh, on patrol and because of the unit I was in, in the Marine Corps, I was a lot better trained than most of the guys. I got on SWAT uh, right away uh, after I got off probation, got into SWAT. Uh, I've worked detective bureau um, I'm a field training officer. I really got hooked into the training, uh, aspect just because one, it, you know, to, to teach is to learn again. So yeah, anytime I can regurgitate that information and show somebody, I'll learn a little bit more about it, a little bit more about myself and a better way to deliver it. And I just fell in love with that. And that's, that's kind of how I went down the training route. Yeah. Very cool. Now, how is it that you and Paul linked up then? So, uh, when I got on the SWAT, uh, they insisted I didn't take any other classes because I had all these documented classes from the Marine Corps. And, uh, I knew that not to be factual. I needed to update my training. So I went down to a place in South Texas called rifles only, and it's a training facility and, uh, went in there after I, I kept taking classes down there and they ended up hiring me to be an adjunct instructor. 
so uh, I ended up doing a bunch of uh, scoped rifle precision stuff for them, and we had a bunch of guys coming through pre-deployment uh, or even pre-sniper school and stuff just to get worked up so that they had a higher success rate, and that's how Paul and I linked up. It was through that training school. Yeah, that was uh, really fortuitous for me to meet you at that point because I was I thought I knew a lot about shooting in the long-range game, and I went down to rifles only. The first time I was down there was a train-up and then a competition immediately following, and I, I was humbled. I was seriously humbled, and it had been a while you know, since somebody had, had humbled me with a gun, so it was really cool to get out there and train with Andrew, and then we did a few more classes down there together, and you know his, his training philosophy is real similar to mine, although he's much more meticulous, so... Yeah, he sort of became my my go-to guru guy for anything shooting related or tactically related because you know he's the best uh, soundboard for me personally. Well, that's that's big time coming from you, I think. Yeah, that's uh, it makes me always feel good when somebody like Paul <laughs> says something like that. You gotta <laughs> how do you respond? Oh yeah, well you know there's not many people that that you can trust, you know, for really advanced practical stuff that's going to work that aren't going to try and sell you a gimmick. So I always know what I'm getting from Andrew and it's always gonna be the best stuff. So, um, but then after rifles only, you ended up starting your own shooting school in in Ohio. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, there was, I always thought we would kind of merge with, uh, with Jacob's crew down there and, uh, do something up North and ended up not working out that way. So, um, I'd always wanted to do more stuff and I was kind of under the umbrella of a couple other companies and I, and that's where I kind of broke out and, and started doing my own thing and then ended up uh, buying property several years ago and created a, a range, 1300 yard range. It's, it's, it's worked out really well. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen your facility just uh, following you on your social media and stuff. So I haven't got a chance to get up there and shoot, but it looks nice. You got a, a tower and what you've got 1300, yeah, thirteen meters. Yards. How? Uh, oh, yards. All right. Yeah. I always forget you were a marine, so you still do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imperial sniper measurements. That's right. <laughs> what um, what are some of the some of the features of your range that you'd like to talk about? So or some of the stuff that you offer, I guess. This is this is where we want to talk about your school. Yeah. So we we do. You know, I'm a big fan of being able to to handle anything, and your if you can see it, you should be able to hit it for the most part. Uh, or at least get to it to hit it. So muzzle contact, uh, you know, out to distance. We'll shoot in and around vehicles, through vehicles, that sort of stuff. Uh, shoot from moving vehicles. Nice. Uh, we just finished putting up a road, so we've got a we've got about 600 yards of road that we can drive around and, and shoot from uh, vehicles. Um, we uh, we have three bodies of water that we can put, uh, you know, small boats in, very small boats like John boats and stuff. But it gives you a different platform to shoot from that, it, you know, the, the sight picture is constantly moving. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, everything always goes back to the fundamentals. We always go back to that foundation. And once we, we get good at what we need to do, then we can start to expand on that. So I know it sounds high speed, low drag, but, uh, I mean, Paul knows we're just, we're all about the fundamentals and then we'll, we'll add those extra skills as, as we build that foundation. But I, I hope that someday we'll even do aerial platform stuff. We just don't have pilots up here that are experienced with that sort of stuff. Yeah. Now, do you guys actually are training a lot of the uh, LEOs in that particular area or across the country or what's your, what's your primary focus of audience? Primary is civilian. Okay. Uh, right now the, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd love to do more law enforcement military. The, the market is just saturated. Yeah, it really is. Everybody, the whole market. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody is a, uh, is an instructor now. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
and a lot of people go for big names and there's a lot of great guys out there. So it's, it's slim pickings for, you know, uh, a, a, essentially a nobody guy like me who, uh, um, you know, I, I, I'm just not on the map for a lot of people. And then, and that's fine. Um, probably my biggest thing that I deal with and I'm really proud of is the faster program, which is the, uh, it's the arm teacher program for the, the United States. And it started here in Ohio, Buckeye firearms association, which is essentially Ohio's NRA. They're the lobbyist group after, uh, Sandy hook, they created a program, got it vetted and really slow, just started getting their foot in the door with a couple of schools, because as long as the school board approves it, um, they'll, they'll allow. So what we did was we created a a training program, uh, to make them successful at it. And it's harder than any law enforcement, uh, standards that are in the state of Ohio. Uh, so that was the only way it was going to get past, uh, school boards and parents would approve it. So, uh, really, really proud to be part of that program. So, um, I spend, uh, about four or five weeks a year training teachers hmm. uh, and faculty members. It's not just teachers. It's, you know, maintenance guys and treasurers and, you know, gym teachers, everybody. Has there been any incidents or anything where they've had to use the skills and techniques that you've uh, trained them on at this time? Yeah, we had one uh, teacher. He was doing a home visit, actually. It was a, uh, I think he's a vice principal. I was showing up uh, to check in on a kid who wasn't showing up at school. Kid came out with a rifle. Uh, he drew his pistol and the kid realized, Hey, the gig is up. He didn't realize he was going to be dealing with an armed teacher, dropped the gun. He held him at gunpoint until law enforcement that were 20, they were 20 minutes away. That's how long it took a deputy to get to him. And he held him there at gunpoint and essentially saved this kid's life or saved his own life. You know, you know, you don't think about that too often uh, when people, you know, make a comment that you're, your your main first responder. You're the, the person that should know enough medical techniques and training to take care of yourself. You should also be the person that you never know what given situation you may be in, like what you just described there. That really says it right there. I mean, 20 minutes before law enforcement arrived, that's that's a long time. And you're not talking about out in the country then. No, it was uh, Youngstown area. So okay, that's not that remote. Happens. Yeah, It's not terrible. No, they were just outside the Youngstown area. But, you know, I tell people that's why you know, I got into law enforcement thinking I would be the guy to show up and kind of solve your problems for you. And I would catch the bad guy and everything else. And I, I quickly realized that's not what law enforcement is. Law enforcement shows up after the problem already occurred. We document what happened with the problem. And then we try to catch the guy or the girl or whoever did it. Right. And uh, so now that's kind of why my my mentality is, well, I want to be part of the solution more than I am now. And I think the best way is to train the true first responders. You, I'm, I'm your backup as law enforcement. If the fight's still happening when I show up, well, I'm going to be your backup. And, and, and that, that's, that's my mindset with it. No, that's all really good. I think uh, it's important at this point to talk about something I learned from Andrew down in Texas was just the timing of everything and the timing of a conflict, an armed conflict or physical confrontation. If you know, you can't clear your holster in a certain amount of time and your threat is within 20 meters, your weapon may be useless or you may have to employ it in a, in a different way. You know, and that's something that you don't learn unless you're on a shot timer or something like that. You know, the police showing up, you know, four minutes alone in a room with somebody that means to do you harm, if they can overpower you, is far too long, you know, and you're going to be lucky if somebody shows up in that amount of time. So I think that I like Andrew's perspective that you're your own first responder, but I also think that we have a tendency to take things too far and to prepare for every eventuality. Mm. And I think that, you know, we might be wasting a lot of our own internal resources and spending a lot of time that is begrudged us 
by our families, you know, doing these other things for training and stuff. So I wanted to talk to Andrew about how he makes a threat assessment and when when you're going to a new environment or what's the difference between being on duty or off duty or if you're going to go out with your kids or you're going to go out alone or if you're going to be completely rural for the day, you're out at the range or you're going to be, you know, working in, you know, Columbus, Ohio or something like that. Are you an everyday uh, carry guy, Andrew? I am. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I've got one on me now. Yeah. You know, so it's, uh, but and then Paul's question is phenomenal. We get into these, these debates about this stuff all yeah. the time, how wrapped around the axle people get with what's happening, you know, and, and, and if it's, you're coming out of the military and you have these high-end threat assessments and you're always worried about, you know, you're going out loaded for bear and you're, 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 you're preparing for the worst possible fight of your life all the time. And then you come back here and you're just wanting to go to Walmart and pick up some groceries and something can touch off there, but it's not going to be a complex ambush. It's probably not going to be, uh, you know, multiple attackers. Typically, even with like the school shooting aspect, it's one person with one or with two guns minimally trained and they spend four to six minutes in the location because no one's pressuring them. As soon as they get pressured, they push out. So understanding one, your environment is huge because it's like you said, you know, what's, what's the difference when I'm out by myself, my mindset is totally different than when my kids are with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know my my uh, options are limited with my with my kids. I can only move so fast. Now, luckily, they're they're older. They're seven and ten, so I know my ten year old can move a little bit faster than what he could before. But he doesn't uh, have the same it, training as you, though. Yeah. No, 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 not at all. Yeah. And he doesn't have the same cardio and the same strength and right. and everything else. And and you know what what kind of fight are we actually looking at and that's what most people need to take a step back and say what am i actually looking to get involved with and we step it all the way down we boil it down to the the most basic thing and what we teach our kids and it always bothered me when when i heard people say this and it wasn't until i took a training that i realized uh how harmful this is to kids when we talk when we teach stranger danger mm-hmm. uh stranger danger is probably the worst thing that we can teach kids because now we've told them that their personal threat assessment is if they don't know the person on the street, they're a stranger and they're dangerous. Yeah. And that's not the case. Well, yeah, that's exactly. I mean, it, we've gotten to the point, I'll even take that to another level, where you know people are so concerned about their security that they actually don't let their kids go outside and play without direct supervision. They don't feel comfortable that their kids can even play in a fenced backyard you know, where it's it's confined with a privacy fence and everything else uh, without parent uh, supervision and everything else. We've gotten to a society, I think, that is uh, paranoid in that way. So it's gotten from not just, hey, listen, don't trust somebody you don't know, you know, have a secret code or secret word or something of that nature. You know, if I say X, this person's if they know me, we'll say something back. Like, Because, you know, there's those situations where a stranger pulls up and says, hey, your dad is in trouble. He said, come with me right now. So those little secret passwords and stuff come in handy for those types of situations. But I think what you're, you're describing is that when you go to Walmart, 99.998% of the time, nothing's going down. It's not a threat. Yeah. yeah. And everybody there is generally a good person. Nobody there wants to harm you. It's that one small percentage. And so what we have to go off of is we have to recognize 
dangerous situations. And that's what we need to be teaching our kids. So when they get older, they understand that you have dangerous situations and you have dangerous people. You need to recognize which is which is which rather than going, I can't ask this person for help because I just don't know them. I don't know you guys. Yeah. You know, but if I needed something and you're on the side of the street, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you for hi, I need help. Can you go call nine one one? Well now that I know yeah. you're packing, I'll be more careful. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so that starts with, you know, what do you think is actually gonna be going down? So like when my kids go to the park, we boil it down to the the basics. What are their biggest threats? Crossing the street. You know, they're more likely to get hit by a car than anything else and get kidnapped. Most kidnappings and sexual assaults on kids happen by a family member or somebody that's already close to the family. Rarely is it somebody who's who's dangerous. So, but can it still happen? Absolutely. So we tell them, you know, they don't have to try and run all the way home from the park to get mom or dad. They go to the nearest adult that they think that they can trust or the nearest house. Yeah. And I, and I tell them if the person doesn't know you, they don't know that that's not your house. So yeah, there's a good, good chance that person's going to disengage because they think you're going to your house. So. Uh, that way they only have to deal with a 50 yard sprint rather than a 500 yard sprint to get home. Yeah. No, I I think it's interesting of how you broke that down. Uh, because also I think most home invasions and stuff happen during the day than they do at night, but everybody's always afraid at night and they fortify their home and everything else and make it Fort Knox. When the reality is that most of the time it's the person who wants to invade the home and they're checking to see if anybody's there. Right. My experience is if someone's going to do a home invasion, they're going to risk that. You get that risk versus reward. We do it when we're planning a mission. You know, what are we willing to to sacrifice to to get the whatever the, the goal is here? Is it worth the risk? In my house, most people are going to say there's nothing worth the risk here. I mean, we have we have a nice TV and we have computers and guns and we've got some cash on hand, but it's probably not enough to come in here and want to get to a gunfight. But I have a, a private client who has a huge collection of Corvettes mm. and, and, uh, and he has watch, he owns a company. He's got a lot of valuable stuff and him and his wife are older. They live alone now. Their kids have moved out. They live in somewhat secluded areas. So some, and it's a huge house. You would, you would look at it and say, there's probably something worth in there. It's something worth, uh, in his house. So when you look at that, he has a different threat assessment. He, I think is a greater risk of having a home invasion simply because of his, cars and his watches and his jewelry and the other things that are in his house. So he has planned more. For, he's a guy who one can afford a safe room and should probably have one because he is in greater risk of that, of that, uh, home invasion. Whereas my, uh, what I'm worried about being a police officer is somebody who I've dealt with in the mm, past yeah. who doesn't like me because of what I've done. And, uh, and it's, it's happened. We've had, uh, threats. My wife, she just retired last Friday. She's a police officer or she was a police officer for 25 years. And we've both dealt with people who have, you know, they give you that stink eye and, uh, you don't quite remember them. And you're like, that, that's my biggest threat. Yeah. I drive a Toyota Tacoma. I could get carjacked, but chances are the person I'm going to be dealing with is somebody who already recognized me and doesn't like me. Um, you know, I look yeah. at my, my mom, she's different. She's older. She's an easier target. Uh, if somebody wants to take that small amount of, of cash that may be on her person or her car, they're more likely going to do it with, to her because she poses less of a threat. Yeah. So there's all these different little pieces of your life that will 
point you in a direction of what you believe you are a target for. Uh, you know, the home invasion, not so much, but somebody who doesn't like me, absolutely. My mom, totally different. No one's going to recognize her because she's never arrested anybody and hasn't done anything unless they're going to take their frustrations out on her that they had, you know, against me. Exactly. And I think this all leads into the point of make an accurate risk assessment. You know, if you don't have enemies, don't worry about thugs coming to get you. If you don't have a big fancy house, you know, don't worry about it. When I'm in New York, I always have in the back of my mind, okay, what am I going to do if there's an active shooter situation or a terrorist attack situation? What's, what's my plan? You know, I don't carry in New York, but if I did, my plan would be different right now. I'm in Colorado. I'm driving through the mountains today. I don't have a pistol on me. The worst thing that I'm going to encounter, like Andrew said, I'm in an older four by four. I could get carjacked, but Who's going to carjack me in Colorado? Almost nobody. I might encounter a situation at a gas station. Knowing that, knowing that that's my thousandth percentile risk factor, I feel pretty confident that I can solve most of these problems with my hands or I can think my way out of this situation without a physical confrontation. Rolling through the city would obviously be different, but I don't need to prep my vehicle with an extra trauma kit. I don't need to. I'm just going to get in and I'm going to go. And today I'm going to be just like Andrew says. You can't rearrange your whole life to account for that thousandth percentile that may not happen. And, and I think that's the biggest takeaway. Are you rearranging your whole life for that one little thing that probably isn't going to happen? I mean, over here in America, we have a lot of doomsday preppers and stuff, and we can certainly go down that path. But I'm curious too, Scott, how is it that it, it differs in attitude and approach to situations, especially in places like London, where, you know, I, I even knew of a, a guy who retired as a London police officer who said that the number of terrorist events and stuff that actually happen within London are not that frequent, uh, but yet it's it's presented that way, or it seems that everybody uh, believes that London is under attack far more than what it really is. Yeah, I mean, negative press stories sell, don't they? So, you know, if, if people just went in the newspapers and said what was good in the world, they wouldn't be selling many newspapers. So, obviously, it, you know, the, the clear difference between the UK and the US is um, uh, the ability to carry a weapon and the availability of weapons. So, uh, we in the UK, we can't have weapons. You can have sporting weapons and rifles and things, but the, um, the, the laws to be able to get your hands on those and get a license are, are quite strict. So very few people have weapons um, in the house. But for me, you know, we're, we're talking about risk assessments and the, the key thing that was, is standing out in my mind coming from a, a country that doesn't have the access and the available means unless you're on the criminal side of things. And if you are, then you certainly can get your hands on weapons, you know, and that's that's the saying and, and why you guys in the U.S. have, and this is probably a whole another podcast, but why I think you've probably got it more right than wrong when it comes to weapons is law-abiding citizens will play by the rules. It's the people who don't abide by the law that don't. And whether you've got weapons available to law-abiding citizens or not, they're still available to those who don't uphold the law. So for us in the UK, there, there is gun crime. You know, um, Knife crime is particularly prevalent in the uk but when you're talking about risk assessment and coming you know back to my industry and manufacturing and things it comes down to likelihood and severity and likelihood is the key for it and like paul said you can't go around 
your entire life expecting worst case scenario 24 hours a day because the actual likelihood of those things happening could be minuscule you know you're talking one in a million chance and if you're always on such a high alert level waiting for something to happen it's just not going to do yourself any good and both mentally physically you're going to miss your life going past you because you're always looking for something else that's never going to come so it, it, it's a difficult situation, I guess, for, for for anybody, you know, whether you're in the US, in the UK, Europe, Asia, wherever it may be, anything can happen at any time. Of course it can. And, you know, we, we see on the news terrorist attacks in the US, in the UK, in Australia, France has probably had um, the most uh, out of the Western world, if you like, uh, you know, there's a lot going on in Indonesia and Sri Lanka and places like that over in the East. But um, in, in the Western side of the world, nobody's had it probably worse than France, you know, with the attacks in Paris and a couple of times and things like that. So it's, things can happen, but the likelihood of that happening to you is very, very, very slim. So you're right. You've got to do a risk assessment and you've got to have it there in your mind and think about things but you can't go constantly being switched on on high alert it you'll never achieve anything in a day well andrew you said in the very beginning that you know you were in a very hyper vigilant state when you're in a combat situation and then you come back to the states and you're you're thinking that you have to remain in that hyper vigilant state and there's also there's podcast shows, there's television shows and everything else that basically state that, no, you should. We should remain in that hypervigilant state so that we can make sure that in the event that anything happens, we're prepared. And so it's better to be more prepared than less prepared and think it's not going to happen. How, how do you kind of respond to that? I, I think that's a very broad statement when we look at the details. I'm all about situational awareness. My kids... Uh, early age knew that term and knew what it meant just on simple things. Um, so hypervigilance is good. It's like when we're driving down the road, I need to be hypervigilant because an animal could run out in front of me. A child could, somebody could make a lane change with, but the vigilance is, is different. I'm not looking for it's somebody more focused. who's, yeah. yeah, no one's tailing me. I'm not looking for a tail or multiple tails. Um, I'm not looking for, I'm not, as a police officer, my hypervigilance, I'm looking at that stuff. That's why it's tough to work more than eight, 10, 12 hour a day as a law enforcement officer. You are mentally drained because at the end of it, you're not only looking at the stuff that you and I look at every day when we're driving down the road, but I'm also looking inside the interior of the vehicles. I'm looking for the body language changes on somebody and that wears you out. So like when my kids are going to, to the park, what I tell them to, to watch out for you know, is somebody at the park who's there and they don't have kids with them. That's weird, right? That's, that's, that's an odd person. You keep an eye on them. If they're creeping you out, they're watching you, you come home and you tell mom and dad about it. Uh, dogs, you know, we get kids in our city and it's a small city. It's 28,000 people. And, uh, and we get people get bit by dogs all the time. So we tell our kids, be careful of strange dogs or even dogs that, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And, uh, and so that's their little threat assessment. They're hypervigilant for dogs and animals, dogs, and people. And so for me, when I go to the store, I'm hypervigilant. I'm watching for the people who are eyeballing me. That's essentially it. I'm not necessarily watching hands all the time, but I'm watching for somebody who, when there's the behavioral change, 
they're not acting like everybody else. Someone's noticed me and it doesn't make sense. That causes concern for me. What will I do? Sometimes I'll double back on the aisle and go back the, the way I came to see if they're going to follow me. And sometimes I'll just confront them and be like, hey, how you doing? And just give them that nice smile and, and, and greet them. And a lot of times they're just like, I know you from somewhere. Did we go to high school? And you strike up a conversation. That's the only reason they were looking at you. In your case, though, you've got a real thing here. I mean, let's face it. You're law enforcement. And when you're not on duty, like you said, you're worried about those individuals that maybe you put away or you did something to that want to have some kind of way to get back at you. And of course, if they happen to bump into you at a grocery store, they may be looking to try to figure out, is this the right place? Or should I follow him to a location where I can do what maybe I've had in my head that I want to do to you. But the average citizen, though, the average citizen doesn't need to walk into a restaurant and do a threat assessment on everybody that's in the room, sit in the back corner with their their back against the wall and watch everybody's movements while they're eating their food with their family to make sure that somebody's not looking at them in the wrong way and going to make some kind of move. Right. The thing that I would bring up is an incident that just happened recently in our in our town. And a guy is driving to work. They, he leaves his little neighborhood Another guy, he cuts off and doesn't realize he cuts him off. So this guy lays on his horn and follows him closer. So he brake checks him. So now we've got this emotion has gotten in, into, the, uh, into the mix. And they're both ticked off at each other. The one guy is driving his kid to school. It's in the morning. The other guy is supposed to be going to work. So he continues to tailgate him. The guy in front turns several times, ends up still going to school. He knows this guy is following him. At that point, I would say, if your situational awareness is this isn't normal, I've already had a confrontation with this person, even if it's in a car and he's following me, I'm not going to my kid's school. I don't want anything to happen. Why not just drive to the police department or call law enforcement and continue to drive? That stuff happens all the time. But what he does, he pulls in right in front of the school, gets out, his kid goes into the school, the other guy pops out, and they start fighting right there. Mm. I mean, full-on fight. Uh, and it was over, somebody cutting somebody off. So. When you're going and you're, you should be hypervigilant then because something just tipped you off. This guy, there was something happened either. I cut him off or he, you know, somebody made a mistake. We've got to let it go. But they didn't. And he should be looking at this guy. What's he doing? And, and he said later on, the guy was throwing his hands up in the air and beeping. And it's like, you know, we have, we have two responses, intellectual response and emotional response. Nothing good comes from the emotional response. You've got to look at it and go, intellectually, what do I need to do here? I'm not going to say, well, you know, I'm bigger than this guy. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to do – your threat assessment is, I don't want to get into a fight. He may have skills. He may have a gun. He may have better weapons yeah, you than don't me, know. even if I am kidding. Yeah. Why get into a gunfight? Drive someplace, call, and either he's going to break contact because he knows he doesn't want it anymore, and he maybe proved his point because he just wanted to scare you. But if he actually wants to fight, what's 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 the mission? The mission today is – I'm dropping little Billy off at the school and I'm going to work. It's not go out and make contact with indigenous personnel and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and collect, you know, it's, that's not the mission. Right. Right. I mean, I guess you, you know, with any risk assessment, it's constantly evolving, isn't it? You know, and, and that's part of situational awareness. So it comes back again to likelihood in that instance there, Andrew, mm-hmm. the guy is following somebody after something's happened. He's brake checked him. That's amped him up even more. He's continuing to follow him. The likelihood is that he wants something to happen from that. He wants the confrontation. He wants you to stop. So you're 100% right in what you're saying. You would not carry on with what you was going to do then. You've got to change your action. 
and pulling up in front of the school is is only going to end in one embarrassment for one, isn't it? You know, you're going to be your kid's going to be the the one whose dad was fighting in in the car park. So you know, like you said, you you carry on driving, go to a different place uh, where where from your kid's school for one, and something that's likely to get that person away from you. You know, the or if you want to get it out of the way, you pull over on the road where you are and get it done there and then, you know, and let the person get out of the car and then off you go again, whatever it may be. But, you you know, you're right in what you're saying. There's, there's nothing good going to come from the emotional side of that. But your risk assessment, I think the, the key point I'm trying to get across is risk assessments need to change continuously. And you've got to adapt to the situation that you've got in front of you. And, you know, as, as military people, that's the, the first thing you get taught about situational awareness is adapting to that situation and changing your course of action to suit whether it may be to carry out the mission. But in that instance, that mission is now abandoned. You've got a new purpose there now. It's to get rid of this guy who's tailgating you for the last 25 minutes, whatever it may be. So adaptability's got to come into it for people. And you can't just... I've got to get the kid to school. That takes a, a backseat in that instance, you know, and whatever it may be in any situation, you need to have that adaptability uh, and to constantly change your risk assessment and make it evolve. I agree with all of that. I, I also think it's important, like Andrew was saying, what's going on around you? Do you look around? Does everybody look normal? Are they acting funny? We're calibrated to normal. And your natural, normal, basic human level spidey sense is going to activate most of the time if somebody's up to no good because they act different. And I think if you have just a moderate sense of awareness in your surroundings, you're going to be tipped off to these things. But there's no reason, unless you suspect that, to be cranked all the way up to 11. And I think also you got to remember, like Andrew said, the mission today, get the kids to school, go to work, get home. That That's your mission now. We don't have to sheepdog the whole world. We don't have to you know, go out and move to contact anymore. We're all just regular guys. Well, except for Andrew because he's still <laughs> SWAT, SWAT badass. But <laughs> I, I'm probably on the uh, far end of the spectrum when it comes to that mentality as well within our – our circle, I probably, lack of a better term, overreact a little bit on some things. Like I, I like the idea of sheepdog because I look at my kids, they're my sheep. They can't do a whole lot and I do need to herd them a little bit, but things change like when I'm by myself, you know, and, uh, it's like, you know, Paul's mission is totally different now. He's traveling, uh, than if he had somebody else with him, it, it changes the whole dynamic of what that person, are they an asset or, are they part of the mission itself? Whereas with my kids are with me, they're part of the mission. Their safety is, is part of the mission. So, you know, it's, it's funny. I, little things that we, that we look at, people love gear. They're so Mm. fascinated with equipment and tangible items rather than the skills. And I look over just the 16 years of law enforcement. uh, I have done CPR more than I've done other than like room entries and everything else. But from a, from a skill level, the most important skill level that I've utilized to this point, I think to actually save lives has been CPR because mm. we're constantly around people and people constantly have heart issues, kids, adults, everything else. So 
we get so driven, you know, the, uh, I had a NCO once say, uh, the, the, the mission drives the gear. Cause it used to be guys would load out. We're like, well, they issued this, so I better attach it. I better take this. I better, I got room in my pack. I might as well throw this other stuff in here. Well, what was the mission? We're going out for a uh, eight hour patrol. We may be out there 16 hours, but there's a good chance we're not. So just beans, bullets, and band-aids. Don't worry about the other stuff. Maybe a little bit of snivel gear here, but you know, what's important. You don't need all this extra stuff. Uh, so what do you need? You know, I know guys that are carrying full on IFAX just to go up to Walmart <laughs> and you know, I'm a big fan. Like I, I carry, I'll carry a small, uh, two tourniquets and a compression band and some other stuff when we went to DC Yeah, because to me, DC, that threat assessment there is if some place is going to get attacked, a mass attack, it's going to be DC in the summer when it's full of people. And, uh, you know, that kit is there for my family, but if my family can get away and I can help out, then that's what that kit is, is for. But I'm not going to take it to Walmart. Could something happen at Walmart? Absolutely. Uh, but the response time for EMS is relatively quick. There's so many other things I could be doing. Um, so it's, you know, it's, you know, the idea of carrying a flashlight all the time. I carry a flashlight when I believe I'm going to be in a dark area. Yeah. I don't carry it all the time and some some people you know you see the cool little uh edc oh yeah instagram posts he's got two knives he's got two tourniquets a gun four magazines all this other stuff he's like just heading down to fill up the gas tank you know yeah they're like yeah they take they, they take a picture of the table with their their wallet and all their edc stuff that you just described there i i i see the same thing that's out there and i kind of wonder wow i mean Every day, then you're walking around waiting for something to happen. And that makes me wonder, then are you going to be looking at something that's a minor incident greater than what it should be? In other words, you know, like you were just describing in your story where the guy that was in the back should never have gotten to a situation where he got that intense, that upset, you know, mm-hmm. and, and why is he that way? Maybe you should question that. Why is he getting to the point where some guy in front of him with kids in the car can upset him that quickly that he feels right. like he needs to follow that family to the school and get out and beat that man up out there in the, are you kidding me? What? Yeah. Why? Yeah. What, what do you prove at that point? Exactly. I think the, the important takeaway is like, don't fight stupid with stupid, you know? Right. I know I say, you know, too much, but on that one, I mean it. Why would you do something out of the norm, out of your normal characteristics, something that you know is unsafe or dangerous just to meet somebody on their level of stupidity, which is what something like road rage is. And like Andrew was saying about needing all this gear and stuff, this is why I thought it was so important to have you on, Andrew, because this is something you taught me. You, you need training more than gear. You need situational awareness more than gear. And the gear that you do have, it should be for the mission. And it should be something you know and you can utilize and you're trained on these people. Like Andrew said, we're so fixated on gear and what's the next best thing. And we forget that there's guys like Machulik that are running a wheel gun faster than you can run a gun with a magazine. Paul, you're still not running with your kid every day, every morning when you're jogging. I mean, I'm wearing my kit right now, <laughs> but, Whatever. but I, I only wear the, the pelvic protector. I'm concerned with my legacy more than my own life. <laughs> 
but yeah, yeah. protect the important stuff. Social media, I think, has uh, not helped in this matter. I mean, you were talking about the Instagram post and the you know everybody carrying their EDC and posting about that, and everybody again uh, almost has a competition at that point. But I think what you were describing earlier, there's a bit of the social media effect that's taken it's uh, a place here where. Um, People see you laying that out, seeing that that's your everyday carry. Talk about on a daily basis about being hyper vigilant, looking around you. There are threats everywhere. You know, there are there are people out here that want to you know kill our kids in schools. There are people out here that want to shoot you at Walmart. There are people who you know, and so uh, if you're always in that state of mind, um, then you can almost be that guy following the family going to school. You know, and yeah. where one little thing triggers you off because social media has put that in front of you where the world is out to get you kind of thing. Uh, and I don't want to take it to this. It sounds very extreme, but I sometimes wonder if it's not that extreme. Have we allowed society to take us there? It, and, and we may have. I, I, I think you've got a point there. The I, and I post the EDC pictures. But oh, you got the almost, wallet and the, I got a... Not, yeah, just just like you know, people want to know what you're carrying, a holster, this and that. But yeah. it's usually very simple, and I get so much blowback. They're like, "Wait, you don't have a tourniquet there?" And I, you, you said that you used to carry. Uh, the mission drives the gear. So when I'm in DC, I carry this little kit because I'm so far away, and there's so many people, and everything else. Uh, I don't always carry an extra magazine. Um, I typically my most common carry is my pistol and my badge. The badge because I have to carry it because it's our policy. Uh, once I'm not a cop, I'm not going to worry about carrying a retired badge or anything like that. And then the second other thing is, is a knife because I use a knife all the time for cutting boxes and rope and, and you know, all sorts of things, but it changes depending on what I'm doing. So when I go out and I carry a gun, when I'm out mowing my, my range, mainly because the coyotes are just decimating the, uh, the pheasant population. I like hunting pheasant. So I use it to kill the coyote. I'm not thinking a zombie horde is going to come through the range and wipe me out uh, coyotes and groundhogs uh, because they're my threat because they kill the animals that I guess I want to kill yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then the groundhogs because uh, they mess up my tractor you know I can break an axle I can tip a tractor you know and they, they mess things up so I, I keep them under control so uh, but it's it's a different threat but you know what I carry more medical gear when I'm out there because I'm 20 minutes from any sort of EMS. A lot of times I'm by myself. Uh, if I'm running a chainsaw, you're darn right I'm going to have at least two tourniquets, you know, combat gauze, pressure dressings, because I may be driving my own bleeding butt to, to the ER, and I want to have as many tools as possible because I'm going to need them. But I don't run a chainsaw at my house, really. I, I can't remember the last time I ever did. But if I did, I'd make sure I had my little my, my kit there ready to go because I'm not a professional chainsaw handler, and I'm going to probably – you know, hurt myself. Yeah, think about that. If it was a twenty-minute wait, like you're describing earlier, uh, you got even if you're running your chainsaw at your house and it's twenty minutes, uh, you, you're going to bleed out. Medical help is not going to be there fast enough it, to help you out. And I, I could totally understand those types of situations. And I think we're not saying that. You know, for an EDC, you shouldn't have certain things or we're not talking about uh, that you have to be aware of your surroundings and making sure that. But I think what we're trying to do is distill it to a situation of which it, like you're saying, of which it is the mission. What What is the mission for today? Well, it's to go to, to Target and go pick up some new underwear. You know, do I have to worry about, you know, carrying this, you know, 
everything, a hundred pounds of gear and everything is when I walk into Target in order to, uh, to pick up my, I don't think so. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think so. It's genuinely refreshing, Andrew, to hear you talking about EDC photos and how you keep it simple based on what you're doing, because I think it's, it's fashionable now for people to do that. And, you know, I see them from the UK where people have got a sidearm, a knife, tourniquets, torches, everything like that. But the thing that I notice about it is the weapon for me isn't a functional piece of equipment. It's a fashionable piece of equipment. So it's it's got the bling on it and, you know, it, it's got the fancy uh, pistol grip and, you know, the the different colored hammer and, and whatever it may be. So right. that, that isn't a functional piece of equipment now. That isn't there for that person to do a job. That's there as a status symbol or a fashion item, whatever it may be. And the other pieces of equipment that they may have, you know, they, they've got the $600 um, pull-out knife and whatever it may be. Now, that does the same job roughly for probably what you're going to use it as a $30 knife, you know, but they, they don't use it for that. So my assumption in my brain is because that now is a fashion statement or a fashion item, the training on how to use those items appropriately isn't there. So that person is purely posting their Instagram uh, photos, carrying it around, you know, with whether you've got open carry or not, depending on the state you're in, letting people see that you're carrying this fancy weapon, whatever it may be, because it's a statement. So they're doing it for that pure reason. So, like I said, the assumption in my brain now is that they haven't got the training for it. And I just want to bring it back to what you said earlier, because I thought it was such an important point. Training is more valuable than equipment. Knowing how to use something, how to act, how to react in a situation is much more important than having a set of tools because your brain and your hands often can get you out of a lot of things. And like you said, the the two things you carry is your weapon and your badge. And if it came down to it, in a lot of situations, your badge would probably be the, the biggest saving grace over your weapon because once you pull your badge out and identify yourself as a police officer a lot of that situation will change course for the better you know before you have to get to pulling your weapon out and drawing your weapon on somebody so it's having that intellectual response like you you touched on earlier as opposed to that emotional response and having the brains to say well actually if i get my badge out and identify myself as a a a police officer that can change the situation and people react to an authoritative figure and it'll change as opposed to pulling your weapon out first. And then once your weapon's out, your weapon's out, you, you've, you've acted on it. There's, there's not really an escalatory step left other than firing it. Is there? Right. Yeah. The, uh, there's probably the most valuable lesson I learned and I learned it uh, over a decade ago uh, was guy. I'm not sure if Paul uh, ever met him. Uh, he's uh, he, at the time when he was down there, he was contracting here and there for. Uh, uh, he was worked some private security, but he was with a foreign uh, soft unit, uh, Demo. I don't know if you met him, Paul, or not. Yeah, um, just online, but I remember Demo. Yeah. So the thing that he taught me that was probably the most valuable is how disarming a smile can be, and uh, and just making eye contact, not to stare somebody down, but just to say, hey, hey, I see you. How you doing, sir? You know, and just 
and just showing that you're not scared, but you're not trying to pick a fight. It's just, hey, how you doing? I see you there. And he worked in East Timor doing some security stuff, which East Timor is not a pleasant neighborhood. Um, and he said he they did that all the time where you just nod at somebody. And even if the person scowled back at you, you pretty much knew he knew you were on to him and that you were not an easy target. Mm-hmm. Just by making that eye contact and giving a smile, not a not a smart ass type thing, not a cocky thing. It's just a just a greeting. And I do that now more in law enforcement than anything. You walk into a bar fight and everybody is ticked off. Somebody got beat up. Somebody didn't get to beat somebody up enough. And and beer's been spilled and everybody's angry. And you start, hey, it's okay. You know, I, I know you're mad. And, and you just you treat them like that rather than jumping down their throat. And a lot of times you can disarm people, you know, emotionally. And you can do that when you have that problem. You you cut somebody off, you made a mistake, oh, I give a little smile and a wave, and they're still probably gonna be ticked off, but there's a good chance they're not gonna follow you to your kid's school and start a fist fight. Mm-hmm. And that it's that, you know, piece of gray matter between your ears that is most important. Diffusing uh, the situation. Yeah. Yeah. General Mattis always said, you know, engage your brain before you engage your weapon. Yeah. I think it's interesting here. You know, we've got you on Andrew and you've been through the military. You've been through a ton of civilian training. You've trained with a bunch of guys. You do the job every day as a police officer. And it seems to me the three biggest things that you value aside from your firearm or the three things you would go to first or use the most in a, in a terrible situation are probably going to be a smile, your badge, so you can gain control and take leadership and quiet things down, and you can start to move in a direct the right direction, uh, and your medical training because you're far more likely to arrive afterwards and have to help somebody out, or the emergency, the sheepdog duty you have today is more likely to be somebody who's been hurt than having to intervene with a weapon, and I think it's Absolutely. important for people to hear that from somebody who has that experience and who has realistic, real world threats in their life from time to time, just on the daily. And, and I would probably take it back just a little bit there is that the badge isn't even that important. It's just understanding human behavior and identifying with people and understanding what shoes they're in and that you're not going to, if someone's really pissed off, you're not going to change their mind right off the bat. What you're Mm -hmm. trying to do, de-escalation doesn't happen in a heartbeat. Yes. You can point a gun at somebody and de-escalate it, but you're not de-escalating it very well. You're just de-escalating by force. You can emotionally de-escalate. And we do it all the time. We do it with our spouses. We do it with our kids. We do it with our neighbors. Um, and that's what will get you out of trouble more than anything is just knowing how to talk yourself out of something or just to talk somebody into a better mood. And, and even if, you know, checking the ego at the door and, and admitting, Hey, it's my fault. Even if it wasn't, you know, those people skills, uh, and I don't know if you guys have read the book, uh, left the bank, no, I haven't. For now, it's it's based off the Marine Corps Hunter Killer Program, and basically what it comes down to is understanding your environment that you're in, and what changes, and how you how you evolve and change with it. And it can you know it's a real simple thing is that if you show up into a village in Afghanistan or in Iraq, uh, and nobody's on the street and they're normally on the street, you know it's probably not good if you don't want to get into a fight. If you want to get into a fight, you know you're at the right place and it's the right, right time. <laughs> right. Uh, but they wanted to recognize, so you recognize that earlier, so now everybody gets a little bit more switched on. Now they're super hypervigilant, you know, and maybe we're changing our formation and everything else. But the same thing, if you walk into Circle K to, to get some uh, a Gatorade and fill up your, your gas tank, 
and all of a sudden no one's around, you know, that should be yeah, wrong because yeah. typically somebody's there or you, you show up at your house and the lights are on and the doors cracked open, but that's not normal. For, and that's happened to me here at our house. My kids went out playing. They left. I didn't hear them. Or I didn't see them. Or the wife just took the kids around the, the block for a quick bike ride and the house is open. I enter a lot more cautiously. I don't yell in. I usually walk in and I'll stop and I'll look and I'll listen, see if anything's different, see if there's, you know, muddy or wet boot prints on the carpet because maybe somebody did force their way in and I, I don't know. So just recognizing that environment and making good tactical decisions rather than what equipment am I going to pull out? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to grab the brass knuckles, the knife for the, uh, flashlight. the fire. Yeah. Yeah. Or the flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So- I mean, and don't get me wrong. Tools are great, but like, like Paul said, the, 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 the those tactical skills using your brain, the medical skills are probably far more important than, than most uh, other skills that you're going to acquire. I think, you know, just to sort of wrap it up, if you're out there and you're wondering, how do I stay on top of my game? How am I going to be ready for everything? And you've been focusing most of your attention on firearms and combatives and training like that. Take a look at your medical readiness. Take a look at your physical fitness and take a look at your area of operation. You're the CEO now. You can make that assessment. You may not need to be loaded down for bear and have body armor in your truck. And you may find that you don't know basic CPR. You haven't had a bleeder class since 2001 or something. I mean, if, if that situation ends up, something ends up happening to you and you don't know how to take care of yourself, as you were describing or, uh, earlier, Andrew, and uh, God forbid something happens, you end up shooting yourself or you stab yourself with a knife or somebody ends up doing something to you uh, accidentally even, if you don't know how to take care of yourself, uh, that's kind of the, the main thing you should be focusing on right at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Andrew... Can you tell our listeners how they can reach you on social media and the name of your school? Yeah, so the uh, it's it's Apex Shooting and Tactics LLC. Uh, we're on apexshooting.com and uh, all over social media with Apex Shooting uh, as well. Um, not to be confused with Apex Triggers or any of the other fifty Apex <laughs> company names. Uh, one of my first business uh, mistakes was choosing that name but uh that's where we're at uh we're located out of uh, northeastern ohio but we do travel to do some training but most of the stuff is done in uh, ashtabula county or wayne county ohio so awesome and you offer training for ccw as well and women only instruction uh, for female students uh, we do a lot of private training. Uh, awesome. we'll do. So if somebody comes to us and says, Hey, it's just me and my daughter and my sister or a friend or my family, we want to do something. We'll tailor training to you. That way you don't have to come in and there's always a skill disparity in classes and, and we recognize that, but sometimes people come in and they want something specific and we're able to tailor training to what they want to accomplish. Andrew, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate you joining us and us talking about this important topic because I think today's social media, as we were talking about, it can get a little out of control and road rage is something that's real that's out there as well. And people just need to calm down, you know, and like you said, really uh, check themselves, uh, check the threat assessment, make sure that they're doing the right thing and and, uh, be prepared, no doubt about it. But just make sure you you have the right tools in place, you know, and you and yeah. you got you're looking at the right situation. Absolutely.